The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of June 10th, 2019. Marcus Thompson of The Athletic will be here to break down the breakdown of the Golden State Warriors as they face elimination in the NBA Finals at the large hands of Kawhi Leonard and some other dudes from Canada. Louisa Thomas of The New Yorker will join us to discuss Rafael Nadal's 12th French Open title and Ashley Barty's first. And finally, we'll rejoin Marcus to have a conversation about race, analytics, and hiring in the NBA. Josh Levine is the national editor of Slate Magazine and the author of The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. Josh is in Chicago, where he had a book-filled weekend. Hey, Josh. Hey, I'm sure all of you guys saw me on C-SPAN 2. I'm trying not to let it wait, get to wait, my wait. head. It was C-SPAN 2? I was watching C-SPAN 1. Yeah, so it got moved to... C-SPAN 2 because, uh, you know, what, whatever was on C-SPAN uh, 1 ran over, probably, yeah. uh, like a really hot uh, legislative debate. Yeah. Just couldn't move it. Yeah. That's understandable. I hope it didn't affect book the ratings TV, too baby. much. Book TV. <laughs> on Monday, though, long feature about the book and you on the front page of the art section of the Chicago Tribune. Let me quote. Levine is long and thin, Christopher Borelli writes, with an oval face and a pensive manner. With his sky blue button-down shirt and black-framed eyeglasses, he gives off an aura of NASA mission control wonkiness circa 1967. Now, Josh, I got to say I'm a little worried that Christopher Borelli was subtweeting you because, for the record, 1967 was a terrible year for NASA. That was, oh, no. the year, that was the year Apollo 1 caught fire during a launch rehearsal, killing all three astronauts aboard, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chafee. So I hope you weren't in NASA mission control in 1967. I thought that when he started off that paragraph, he was going to get to my wingspan. That seemed like where, where it was going. Long uh, and thin. Standing reach. Yeah. It, yeah. Felt, it felt like I was the NBA combine. So yeah. that was exciting. Good story. Can't complain about a good story about your book. No, you can't. No, you can't. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. We are taping the show on Monday morning, which is before Game 5 of the NBA Finals on Monday night in Toronto. As I speak, Kevin Durant and his injured right calf are listed as questionable for the game. Durant did practice on Sunday, and the will-he-or-won't-he-play narrative has hijacked the possibly more relevant narratives. Kawhi Leonard is God, and his teammates have been God's wingmen, and the Warriors beyond Durant are really banged up. Marcus Thompson of The Athletic joins us from Toronto. What's up, Marcus? What's up? What's up? Well, I didn't well, mention— thanks for having me back, by the way. We I love having you, you on. But I did not mention your new book in that part of the intro because I want to mention it now. It is titled KD, Kevin Durant's Relentless Pursuit to Be the Greatest. Nature hates a vacuum, Marcus. And in the absence of actual information, there's been an awful lot of speculation about whether Durant is relentlessly pursuing returning to this series. After Toronto blew out Golden State in Game 4, you tweeted, the whispers and questions and moods behind the scenes. Man. What's going on, Marcus? I mean, there's just a lot of people just don't know what's happening. Like, that's what it boils down to. And, can't you know, some of it is media kind of, you know, throwing stuff out there. Some of it is the team is not communicating well enough. And obviously Durant has not talked. You know, he has not leaked anything to the media. So no, no one just knows what's going on. And then, like, after that game with, you know, this idea, like, they might, the season might be over. They're down to their last shot. It was just like there were people who were like, we don't even know what's happening with Kevin Durant. So, you know, I just think a lot of like, first off, this is how dynasties end, right? <laughs> they end a little bit messy. 
<laughs> there's some drama involved, right? Things don't work out as planned. Like that's how it goes. But just the realization, I think, hit them after that game. Is it the case that there are folks, either players or or um, you know anybody associated with the team that's pissed at KD about all this, or are people just more upset? by the uncertainty and don't blame him for it. Because that does seem like the the subtext here. You know, Clay Thompson is playing hurt, Kevon Looney, Boogie Cousins, even Steph Curry. They're all playing hurt. Why isn't KD playing hurt? Well, uh, as as one who uh, tries to get confirmation on stuff, I haven't been able to get comfortable to the point where I can write anything. So I'm not going to make that grand conclusion saying it. But I think the bigger thing is, People just don't know. It's not like a clear cut. It hasn't been clear cut to people in the organization, like what what is actually happening. Uh, and I think that's a that's a part on all sides. Like maybe maybe KD should have been talking a little bit more. Uh, maybe his team should have been leaking stuff. Maybe maybe the Warriors should have been telling the players like what's happening and the status along the way. Or maybe everybody should just give Kevin Durant the benefit of the doubt, understanding who he is. Like who knows, but. There's just a lot of – it went from we're playing in Houston. We're like, we're about to win this series so we can get our guy back, right? We're going to win this series. We got to keep winning so we can get KD back to – man, I don't even know. <laughs> and that was the kind of general the general mood. So the last two days have been like, you know, trying to reshape the narrative and reset the narrative. Uh, and, and the real truth is – this is probably what it was going to be all along, right? It was it was always a long shot. Uh, it was always like maybe game five, game six, and I don't. I just don't think that was stated clearly enough from the outset. I think it's also partly that we've become so conditioned to the Warriors being pretty much indomitable that now that they're being dominated, we don't quite know how to process it, whether it's just this confluence of injury or whether it really is that Kawhi Leonard is playing. No, not out of his mind, but in his mind, and the rest of his team is supporting him. I mean, they clearly have a better team, right? Like when you take away Kevin Durant from this team, you um you put you know Kevon Looney and Clay Thompson like on the injured list. I mean that that's just too much. This team is good, man, and 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 I'm saying team, not just like generically. Like they are a well put together team. You know, who've been through some fires together. They've got a lot of experience, even though this is their first time in the finals. They have like pieces that fit together, you know, backups and and big men and options. They can play multiple ways. Like the Warriors just don't have that anymore. They don't, I mean, after the top five players, you just don't know what you're getting. And you take away one of those guys or two of those guys. I mean, they literally just gave away, they had to give away game three, you know, because it's just Steph and the Pips out there. So. <laughs> Uh, it's that that Toronto team you gotta be fully stacked against them you're not beating them with a partial team they're that good and not only are they that good they're just that like complete as a team so I think that's the thing it's like man there's looking around like okay maybe (laughs) maybe uh uh Quinn Cook and Alfonso McKinney aren't going to be the ones to get this done. <laughs> we kind of need, kind of need Kevin Durant out here. What, what, what's the latest on that front? Kyle Lowry and Mark Gasol are so crafty, man. Like that, that I think has um, been really fun to watch because not only do you have you know Leonard and and Siakam who are just so so good on both offense and defense, but you get the sense watching the Raptors, that these are a bunch of guys who absolutely know who they are and know what they're doing, and they've been playing together, you know, even though, you know, Gasol was a midseason acquisition, like, they know how to play together, and they know how to pick apart a team that, especially in Game 4, like, the Warriors' defense was just, like, totally perplexed the team, but by just, like, the pick and roll, <laughs> um, like, have you not seen that before? And the Raptors are just taking taking advantage yeah, that it was weird. I mean, Steve Kerr is having a hard time with Nick Nurse too. Like that, that's got to be on the table. Just not figuring out what to do with Kawhi. Like, I mean, Kawhi's a dude you probably, you just can't trap the Raptors. They pass too well. It's not like Houston where if you take the ball out of James Harden's hands, 
it's a bunch of dudes who can't do anything with it. But shoot, like this team, you 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 take the ball out of Kawhi's hands and you're gonna put it in the hands of a dude who can make a play. And it's they have great success when they just switch against Kawhi. Just switch, right? I mean, he's taking jumpers, he's getting to the hole and drawing some fouls, but he hasn't been incredibly efficient outside of until game four where he just decided to take over the whole series of the continent, right? But up until then, it's been like, okay, Kawhi's good, but you can live with what he's doing. And then they just kind of wet the bed on that one. What was it like at the end of game four when there were all these Canadians in Oracle, like maybe shutting down the arena forever and singing Oh Canada? Like what an odd (laughs) scenario that was. The, I, we were in a locker room and it's happening. We see all these videos and I was like, wow. I mean, for as as a native Oaklander, it was like, y'all better be glad this ain't 08. <laughs> the Steven Jackson, Barrett Davis led Warriors, that, when that crowd was there, it would have been some fights in that crowd. <laughs> there's, there's no question about that. But that, that's for, for everybody else, it was like, wow. So this is this is what Oracle is now, letting people come take over. It was a real cool vibe, though, and that's that's kind of what has me excited about about Game Five. It's like, like even either way, like history is going to be made in this series, and it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to experience like a, a, a country winning a championship for the first time. You know what I'm saying? Like that's that's yeah. kind of cool, and they kind of brought that vibe to Oakland. It was like. Man, this is lit. Like this is what it this is what it's supposed to be. Like this is like the best part of sports. So if they close this thing out for game five, Toronto's gonna go nuts. Like it's gonna be party in the streets. And I got a six thirty AM flight and I I need a reason to not go to sleep. So that that sounds like a good one. <laughs> uh teams down three to one in the playoffs in the NBA are eleven and two hundred and thirty three, and they are one and thirty three in the finals. Um I can't remember what that one Who's was. The one? Yeah, yeah Who's what was the one? one? I mean, look, if the other part of sports that are great are comeback narratives. I mean, Steph Curry looked fatigued in game four. And maybe it was fatigue, maybe it's frustration. I don't know. You know Steph's mind better than I ever will, Marcus. Um, but win one, steal this game in Toronto, then it gets exciting. Then it's sports. That's the other part of sports that are great, right? No question. If they somehow get this game, I feel like I feel like that will be Toronto's like you know aptitude test for winning a championship, right? Now they now they'd be on the clock. Like all right, now you got to go back to Oakland and win on the road to try to prevent a game seven. I mean that's the ultimate. Like, are you ready for this? Uh, they could probably end that all in game five, right? I mean the way they're playing, it just they just look pretty unbeatable, at least by this this tired Warriors team, but. If, if they let these Warriors win this game, that that's trouble because it's going to be tough to win a third straight in Oracle. That's two more days for Kevin Durant to be Kevin Durant. And once you start getting that energy going, it, it's, it's tough to go against. So Toronto definitely needs to seize this opportunity. Like, this is their shot right now. I mean, it feels dumb to even be talking about this because, like, how many people are going to listen to this podcast before the game comes out? But this is um, such an opportunity for Kevin Durant, who's never been really embraced and loved uh, by the fans in Oakland in the way that Steph has. Um, And it's not particularly fair, given how compromised he's going to be with the calf. But if he were to do this, if he were to come back Willis-Reed style, lead the team, you know, in in game five and then to win the series, you know, for all that we kind of chuckle at, like, legacies and and narratives, that would be a career-defining sequence for him. Oh, and even if he's he's not 80%, 70%, 60%, even if he comes back for 10 minutes and demonstrates that, you know, the psychological part of it, the public relations part of it, that I want to win. I got to be out there even if I'm compromised and even if it's just for a limited time to show my teammates and show the city that I care, that I want to do this. It's kind of set up for that, right? It's set up for him to be the hero. And like from, from what we've learned the last couple of days, like even though he doesn't talk, like Durant is behind the scenes kind of pining to play, uh, and he just hasn't communicated it, but like this is it right here. And I think this 
this sets it up for a return too. Like, can you imagine if he comes out and plays halfway decent and they win this game? Like they were all, the love was already trending his way after he said, I'm Kevin Durant, you know who I am. And then when dropped 50, right. There was already like this almost appreciate KD movement happening in the Bay. So if if they win this game and he's a he's a part of that and he's out there limping, hitting jumpers and you know doing the whole theatrical thing, I think that carries some momentum into the offseason. Now it could make him say, "Oh, y'all y'all love me now." They forget that, or it could make people make him say, "Like, look, this is what I've been waiting for this whole time." And they're going into a new arena. There's gonna be there's gonna have to be some kind of transition. It's kind of setting up that way if it works out. This could be the grand, beautiful story that the Bay Area has envisioned where now they, at, at the end of it all, right, they end up as close as they've ever been and say, all right, let's 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 keep this going. It's a chase. If he does that, this would be like, man, that would be a real relentless pursuit to be the greatest right there. That would be fire. Oh, How sweet, many books would I say? Sweet, sweet, sweet transition there, Marcus. Marcus Thompson writes for The Athletic. <laughs> His new book is KD, Kevin Durant's Relentless Pursuit to Be the Greatest. You should buy it. Marcus, that's a lot. Y'all man. always got me saying crazy stuff every time. <laughs> Thank you for doing it. No problem. No problem. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Before we get to the French Open, I want to invite everyone to stick around for our bonus segment for Slate Plus listeners. We'll be joined by Ryan Lambert of Yahoo Sports, and we'll talk about the Stanley Cup finals between the Boston Bruins and the St. Louis Blues. To listen to that conversation, you need to join Slate Plus. It's just $35 a year, and you get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. On Sunday in Paris, Rafael Nadal beat Dominic Thiem in four sets to win his 12th French Open title. As a reader pointed out to SI's John Wertheim, Nadal can lose in the first round of the next 91 French Opens and still have a 500 winning percentage at the tournament. So let's be sure to check back in with him in 2110. On the women's side, Australia's Ashley Barty beat Marketa Vondarashova of the Czech Republic in straight sets to win her first Grand Slam. Barty, who is 23 years old, quit tennis between the fall of 2014 and the spring of 2016 because she said she wanted to experience life as a normal teenaged girl and have some normal experiences. Among those normal experiences, playing professional cricket. Joining us now is Louisa Thomas, who writes about tennis for The New Yorker. Hey, Louisa. Hi. Let's start with Ash Barty. She won the final easily, 6-1-6-3, and appeared to exclaim, what the fuck, at the moment of victory? So, yes, she was pretty surprised. It helped that Barty faced just one seeded player, number 14 Madison Keys, in seven matches in Paris, but she also won 14 of the 16 sets she played. That's tennis. You play who the draw tells you to play, and she played really well. She played brilliantly during the final. Um, she played exactly the bat she wanted to play. Barty is a game with a phenomenal um, variety. She has a lot of composure in the big moment. And she, um, yeah, you, you can only play the, the opponent across the net. And, um, but you also have to play your nerves. And she, she defeated both pretty well, I think. Barty 
such a fun game. She's the rare player. I mean, maybe you can come up with some some comps for us, Louisa. She reminds me a little bit of Justine Anna, uh, because she's very small but extremely powerful, and it's just so fun to watch her smashing forehands. She's got this like ridiculous slice, which you wrote about in in one of your pieces, where it's an offensive shot for her. It's just like so sharp and, um, you know, goes so deep into the court. And she was also fourth on the women's tour in aces last year and has like an amazing kick serve. It's just like a very odd but pleasing combination of skills, especially for somebody her size. I think it's actually not unrelated. I think that um, she had very good people around her growing up who saw that she was not going to be um, one of these ball bashers from the back of the court because she was not going to be six feet tall. She's, you know, she's five feet five. Um, and, and I think that might even be exaggerating it sometimes when I see her standing next to other players. Um, but so what they did instead was that they created a game of um, incredible variety and she has the, the mindset to do it. She has the intelligence to sort of be able to read the situation and know when to come in, when to use slice, when to change up speeds. Um, but certainly she's not one of these players who just plays with touch. She has incredible, a very heavy top spin forehand and a great big kick serve, which is really good on clay. She's not normally um, in the past. She's not been very comfortable playing on clay, but um, she certainly has the weapons for it. It turns out. And her story is so appealing because of what I mentioned in the introduction, that she took this time off. She was your classic teenager and preteen, pushed through competitive tennis. It was her life. And she reached a a breaking point um, and decided to reset and did something really weird, you know, took up cricket and got to play for the Brisbane Heat of the Women's Big Bash League. Um, and that is, I think, you know, it, it feels good to see an athlete. It always feels good to see an athlete who has that self-awareness and the ability at a very young age to say something is wrong here. I need to sort of start over or take a step away and maybe I'll come back and maybe I won't. I mean, yes, she had already won like $900,000 by the time she was 19, but still, Oh, it was an incredibly mature decision. Um, and I think that also it speaks to her family and the people who are supporting her that they really encouraged her to take whatever time she needed and figure out what she really wanted to do. Um, she was traveling to international tournaments at a very young age, and um, she has spoken very openly about how homesick she was. And also she was quite a perfectionist, and, and that can be a really um, difficult combination because you know tennis is a sport in which you are losing all the time. I mean, even we talk about Nadal's incredible record of the French. Um, he's still not winning 60% of points. I mean, this is someone who has to have the mental resilience to, um, to win again and again and again. Um, even if, you know, point to point, it feels like you're probably losing a lot. <laughs> um, and so tennis can be hard that way. And she really realized that she needed to take some time. She, I don't think it's um, a coincidence that she decided to play a team sport. Um, and I think that that helped her a lot. And, and then she was able to come back to the game on her own terms. A lot of what she says or said about what was so difficult for her about tennis is what Nick Kyrgios, her countryman, yep. says. The difference is that she did something about it, um, that she did step away rather than kind of spend years um, you know, playing the sport in a desultory manner and just seeming miserable about it. Um, obviously, you know, we're going to take any opportunity to bash Nick Curious on this, on this podcast. No, not really. Um, but how do you, do you see their stories kind of in parallel? And um, do you think that, you know, there is a lesson here for him or is it, are there scenarios just too different? I mean, it's hard to know. I, I don't really know either of them personally so enough to say that, you know, this is the solution for one person um, is clearly the solution for another. I've always thought that Nick might benefit from a little bit of t- time away from the sport. Um, but I also think it does, um, you know, there's so much pressure on Nick Kyrgios, um from his countrymen, from tennis at large, 
Um, and there's a lot of kind of negativity around him too. I mean, a lot of that is, uh, because of self-inflicted wounds. Um, but I really was struck, you know, reading about um, Ash Barty's story, how much um, support she got when she decided to step away. There was a great um, yeah. line, and I'm going to um, butcher this, but, um, you know, she had the tennis legends sending her texts saying, you're doing absolutely the right thing. Um, you know, go, 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 go have fun. Like, go relax, you know. Um, her co- coaches were, were hugging her and they, they understood, you know, and, and this is someone who had shown so much promise. She was a, um, you know, a former junior Wimbledon champion and, um, the, really the kind of promise and hope for a very, very tennis hungry nation. And they were saying, that's okay. You know, go, go get better, you know, feel better. And then, and then, and then we'll see where you are. And I think that that was really valuable. Um, you know, and it happened when she was a little bit younger too. Um, you know, I think it might've been different um if she'd been had this kind of success on a very big stage and then done it but um you know it's always hard to know it's always hard to to read one situation into another but um certainly i think that nick curious has got to try something (laughs) different um because whatever he's doing is not working and certainly um whether it's whether or not it's a parallel situation um I, I find a lot of hope and inspiration in, in Barty's story. Well, I want to make another connection to an athlete that you know better, and that's Simona Halep. You did a long profile in the New Yorker of Halep last month, um, and she also experienced the sort of, of, of had a sort of epiphanic moment. I mean, it, for her, it came after winning a major. She won the French Open. But she discovered, and you tell the story, she was a negative person. She didn't like her persona on the court. She didn't like her persona off the court in a lot of ways. And she did step away um, in a more limited fashion. But there was introspection and help and change. She stepped away um, for two months. And that was actually, I think that a lot of the, the work that she did was while she was playing tennis. But yes, I think that she did have um, a real kind of epiphany and realized that she couldn't keep going the way she was going. Um, her coach, Darren Cahill, um, helped make that clear to her. Um, and then she really decided to commit to seeing a sports psychologist in a kind of more serious way. Um, and also to sort of reckoning with why, why was it that she was so um, frustrated with herself and so negative on, and why she sort of tried to preempt her own success by sort of saying, oh, you're not good enough to do it. Um, and, and it really paid off and she's really quite happy now, um, by all accounts. So I think that tennis more than a lot of sports, um, really is a mental game. Um, we tend to kind of want to talk about psychology to the exclusion of everything else in, in, when we talk about everything, um, both in tennis, but in all, all sports. But, um, this is a game where your state of mind really has, um, consequences for the way you play. Rafael Nadal said after winning the title that he was prouder of the emotional maturity that he was able to show in coming through this season than he wasn't actually getting the trophy. He had to pull out of a match against Federer at Indian Wells due to injury issues, and so he's just been really struggling. He didn't win a tournament until May for the first time in forever. Um, and just having the ability to recover from physical ailments, but also just like feeling really down and like he wasn't able to play to the best of his ability with something that, um, you know, was super important to him and very, you know, it, it was really telling that after winning the title, extending his ridiculous records, that that was the thing that he wanted to talk about. Like everybody's going through something and, um, you know, the folks who are able to get in the right mental state and there are different pathways to do that. Those are the ones who end up being successful. And you can actually see that happen in microcosm. Um, team broken twice. Nadal immediately broke back. I mean, he is someone who just has this incredible genius for being able to summon whatever, secret powers he's able to summon in those situations. Um, I think that there are some pretty interesting stats on, on when he is broken, when his serve is broken, he has a ridiculously high break rate in the next game. 
Um, and, and it's very, very hard to recover like that in when it, everything is happening so fast, you know, when, when something feels like it's slipping away. And, um, I think if you, you know, if you would watch that match and you saw the first two sets and you thought, Oh my gosh, team is like, he's really bringing it. He's playing championship level tennis and second two sets, Nadal wins six, one, six, one. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable the kind of mental fortitude he has. And yeah, he's not really given enough credit for that. Um, we really focus on his ability to just physically grind away, but what he's able to do, um, I think his coach, Carlos Moya after the match called him a mental genius. And that, that is really, I think, the story. And we saw it in the semifinal against Roger Federer. In the second set, Federer had opportunities to, to close that set out. Nadal broke back. Nadal fended off, you know, what looked to any normal observer to be sure signs that he was going to lose the set and move on to the third set. It didn't happen. It's just unbelievable. I mean... I, I can't get over the fact that he seems to be playing better, at least on clay, than ever before. And playing differently. I mean, I, we all have recency bias. So, you know, I, I might not, not have said this if I had watched all 11 previous <laughs> victories before watching this one. But, um, you know, four or five years ago, I'm sort of talking with my friends about this, this kind of tragic decline of Nadal, and here we are, and he he looks fresher than than Dominic Team, um, and he's winning, you know, over seventy percent of his first serves, and you know he's winning twenty three of twenty seven points at net, Nadal on clay. I mean, that's amazing. And some of his, you know, there was one point where he um, was at net, he's drawn into net, and he had this kind of like stabbing backhand volley lunging thing that bounced back you know, bounced over the net and then back toward the net had so much backspin. I mean, it was like, it was a, you know, a circus shot, but the fact that he is able to sort of continue um, improving and expanding his game and, and not just sort of um, content to be the best clay court ever, but to be the best clay court ever, even by his own standards is, is just mind blowing. Let's say a quick word about Dominic Team, who beat Novak Djokovic in the semis in five sets, um, which ended Djokovic's quest to be the holder of all four Grand Slam titles. So that's a, obviously a huge achievement for Team. Won a set off Nadal, which is also a huge achievement, it must be said. This is the second straight French final for him, the second straight loss in the French final to Nadal. He is so good. He, you know, we were talking about Barty hitting a heavy ball. Like, I don't know if there's anybody in tennis who hits a heavier ball than Dominic Team. Maybe Nadal. <laughs> yeah, maybe Nadal. But he's a guy who, yeah. you know, we talk about how many French titles Federer would have won without Nadal. It's, like, pretty clear that Team would have had at least too. He can, this continues the remarkable, like, mind-bending stat that no man born in the 1990s has ever won a Grand Slam tournament. Um, it just seems like his time must be coming at some point. It would not surprise me if he won the title next year, nor would it surprise me if Nadal won. It wouldn't surprise me either. In fact, like, I'm just going to continue betting on Nadal until he retires at the French Open. <laughs> because he's earned it at this point, you know, he's, he'll be 40 years old and like being wheeled out in the court. And I'll say, well, I can't bet against it at all. Louisa Thomas writes about tennis for the New Yorker. Louisa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Last week, in an interview with Isaac Chotner of The New Yorker, Jalen Rose, the former Michigan and NBA player and current ESPN talking head, gave an interesting answer to why some players might not be accepting of modern analytics. 
There are many people that feel like it has a cultural overtone to it that basically suggests that even though I may not have played and you did, I am smarter than you and I know some things that you don't know and the numbers support me, not you, Rose said. The hosts of the ESPN talk show High Noon, Bomani Jones and Pablo Torre, took it further. Let's listen to a bit of their conversation. Bottom line is the path to being a coach and being an executive for black dudes in the NBA has typically been to be a player. Now what they are trying to tell players is your knowledge is not good enough because it has to be something that is quantifiable. Well, if that's the path for black guys to get into front offices and get to be coaches, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have nothing but white dudes doing these jobs after a while. I have two master's degrees in economics and the Sloan Conference invited me to be on a panel on activism. Do you have any degrees in like math stuff? I have, not only do I have no degrees, I was really bad at math. What panels they ask you to be on when you go there? Well, I'm a moderator. I'm not a yeah. panelist. Yeah, no, but even but still, what do they ask you to do? I have moderated basketball analytics. Yeah, okay. Multiple years. I've done right, all that. Right, but my point remains, if you ask most people to walk in this room and say, which one of these dudes is good at math, who do you think they're pulling? They're pulling you. Absolutely. They're absolutely pulling you. And that is not something that I'm comfortable right, with. Right, right, but I'm again, right, right, right. But the, I am bad at yeah, math. Right. But the point I'm making is if you want to know how these pipelines get that way, think of that very simple example. Marcus Thompson of The Athletic rejoins us now. Marcus, I thought this was a fascinating conversation about the way we think about sports, about how front offices shape our understanding of sports, and about who gets the opportunity to do what jobs in sports. About 80% of players in the NBA are African-American. I'm willing to guess that 80% of the people holding jobs as analytics guys in NBA front offices are not African-American. Marcus, what did you think of uh, of that segment? Oh, I thought it was spectacular, especially, man, that point Bomani made at the end about how he's got two economics degrees and they asked him to speak about activism <laughs> at the Sloan conference. I was like, well, I mean, I went to college with Bomani, so I, I know that dude is a, is a straight-up genius, but that was a pretty salient point about just the perception of it and how Pablo has spoken on panels at Sloan and he, he says he's not even good at math. Yeah, he, he gets think, an, he gets to moderate <laughs> the analytics panels. I know, right? I you know what, look, personally speaking, like in my I got this from my dad. He was the same way. We just have a complex as black men about being deemed as not smart and not dumb. And that is the undertone of this all. It's like, yeah, you good, you can like even I remember Mark Jackson told you like, yeah, he's a good motivator. Right. And that's the that's the label you get. But all right, now this is big boy stuff here. Like this is like brain stuff. So we need to go find this nerd. And even though that nerd really might be good at it, right? Like that's why he's a nerd. The idea is, all right, now we're getting to the educational part of the program and we need you to step out. And uh, I understand. I know exactly what they're saying, why they're getting at it and why like it offends them because it's almost saying, it just brings back the whole you're not that smart thing. And there's a social component, too. Like, it's bigger than sports. If you just look at the STEM programs across the country, the, like, who's in math and science? Like, nobody's just funneling black kids to tech, to math and science. Like, that, that, and that's the movement in, in inner-city neighborhoods to try to bring STEM programs. Like, this stuff is all a part of American history just kind of playing out in sports. And that that's what the perception is like once if you're black like man can i see your four degrees from mit before i think you can actually do this messiah jerry the gm of the raptors um is african he's a guy who's gotten a lot of um deserved love for for building that franchise um also i just saw a news item today that um david griffin the new head of Whatever, whatever his title is with the Pelicans, they're hiring Swin Cash, Cash. WNBA. Yeah. yeah, the WNBA player um, to be like a top exec. And so there are a bunch of pathways to get into front offices in the NBA. Um, and I feel like there are a lot of – Jalen made a lot of really good points. Bamani and Pablo made a lot of really good points. I feel like the NBA, though, is still ahead of like baseball – and the NFL, and, like, everybody could stand to do a whole lot better. But um, I think it's, like, generally pretty cool, like, that there are different routes to get to, um, you know, into front offices and, and the NBA. 
Yeah, there are, and no question, NBA is better. I think like people like Jalen are concerned that because you're better, like don't think you're actually good at it, right? Like it's yeah, not it's sure. not really about being compared to NFL. It's about just being good at it. And like the problem is, I, there's a young man I know who was trying to get on. I mean, he tried he tried so hard for years, and it was crazy. Like he would literally do free work and submit it. You know, he would literally do like he would volunteer. He took a job in the ticket office just so he could be close enough because he couldn't get on. He's he's like buying stuff on his own, buying software, like running plays like he's doing. I mean, he's doing everything he can to get on. And then finally, he got a coach who was like, you know what? I like your hustle. I like your work ethic. This is pretty good. Like, yeah, like when I when I get. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to try to bring you on next year. And then they didn't bring him on because. A, a son of another GM filled the spot, right? <laughs> somebody made a call. He's like, oh, yeah, that spot. We had to give it to this, the son of somebody else. And the problem is not like the avenues. It's like, how do you get there? Like, how do you get noticed? And some of these analytics guys that we see, like, you've never heard of these guys. They're like, they're like, who are they? Where do they come from? Somehow they have access to the people who make the decisions. And it, like, obviously, Swing Cash might be a great hire, but. Swing Cash is a known commodity. Like, it's what about that dude who's, like, really smart and knows this stuff really well, but he's not already in the circle? The question becomes, how does he get in? What are the avenues to find the other minds that are out there and not just the people who are already known to be smart? I think that's that's the hurdle the NBA needs to get across is that part, finding the gyms that are outside of the uh, the typical communities. Right, and I think that the point that Bomani and Pablo really were making is less that the NBA isn't progressive in its hiring. It is the the that racial report card that Richard Lapchick does every year. The NBA got an A plus for racial yep. hiring in 2018. Um, the issue is more if NBA analysis on court stuff, the way we prepare and scout and 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 hire players, if that begins trending more and more and more toward quantitative analytics and the bulk of your applicants in quantitative analytics are white guys that went to Harvard, that is going to limit the pool. So it's either the NBA has got to be more diligent about finding, you know, it's not John Urschel who's getting an MIT PhD in math, but finding guys that want to do sports analytics who are African-American, who are minority and bringing them into the NBA. And I don't know whether the NBA is doing that or not. They might be doing that. For Absolutely. all we know, they have they have hiring departments and they they search for qualified candidates. Um, so one hopes that that is what is happening, and that if the trend continues, which it's going to obviously, because that's how sports are that's how sports are structured today. That the leagues are the ones; it's on them to go find these guys and to be to encourage the broader issue of STEM education in the inner cities and minority um, students. And, you know, I think also I think it does create more opportunities for women, too, because if it really just comes down to work product. Right. <laughs> like, I mean, you put some women in the mix, they're going to be just as good as men. And it, 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 in a way, it does remove the idea of like move the stereotypes and the perceptions by saying, man, who produces the good work? Let's make it about the work. Right. But the question is, like, who gets in to compete? Uh, and, and as long as as long as people I don't think the NBA is denying people to, the chance to compete, which that's just not how the NBA rolls. But it's just got to be a progressive effort to find other voices, find other, you know, uh, uh, people and, and break away from the status quo, which the NBA does really well. I mean, like you said, it just hire swing cash. And some of this, let's not mistake it. Right. Some of this is just traditional jocks and nerds like the the endless rivalry that will go on forever right like <laughs> the people who know how to play and the people who watch and don't know how to play like that's never gonna die so <laughs> if, if there's gonna be ever be a bunch of people in influencing basketball and they've never played like the people who play will always have a problem with that somehow or another it's the the pipeline question is always really interesting whether we're talking about journalism or, or sports or any other field but i think for a lot of um, kids out there who grow up and are like huge basketball fans and are like, I want to be involved in the sport, but I'm like, 
a five foot two white guy. Uh, yeah, and there's like <laughs> no way they're like thinking from when I'm they're like ten years now. old. Like I'm gonna be in an NBA front office, whereas like somebody um, you know who's actually who's a player, they're like spending their whole life training to be on the court um, and to be in the league in a totally different way. So they're going to kind of inevitably be behind somebody who's been, you know, planning this other route, which is an interesting, uh, you know, an interesting problem that is perhaps unsolvable. Well, it's solvable in a pretty simple way. And that is that if you are an educator and you have a group of athletes in front of you, whatever sport they play, you encourage them to do things that will allow them to have a career in sports that may not exclusively be on the court. You go yeah, to, you know, like you a, go to like college, college, you know, you go to college. You mean, you mean one of these fine NCAA institutions that are educating exactly, people? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean like in a perfect world, yeah, that's exactly what they should be doing. They should be, you know, they should be majoring in sports management and analytics. It's, no it's, question. it's doable. <laughs> it is very doable. I, I, I mean, I wrote about this, uh, I think last year, a year ago, there's a program out in Oakland called the Hidden Genius Project. And literally they have freshmen, sophomores who are doing analytics for high school teams, right? They're, they're already starting this. And that's great. they're not saying I'm making the NBA because of my jumper. They're like, man, I, my video breakdown skills are epic. Watch, watch me make the NBA. And it was crazy because I met them. We were on a panel together. And the Warriors did like a panel and we were on the panel and this this kid, he's 14 and he's already like knowing the software to break down the video that the Warriors use. So like, you're right. It's creating opportunities. It's, it's like, it's making people who otherwise will have no shot at being anywhere near the NBA to be near the NBA. Like, like that's, that's real. That's real for, for people of color. That's real for women. That's real for the most unathletic people. Right. Like, like you could actually be in the NBA. It's crazy, but you can. So the the only trick, I think, is just making sure people have the opportunity. And, the, you know, the NBA is still like sports and that it's a lot of like network base. Right. You, you hire people who, you know, and you're only as big as you only as diverse as your network. So it ends up being something like that in many ways. So probably there needs to be a better way to tap into that. My last thought on this is that, you know, Jalen Rose made the point in his interview with Isaac Chotner that, you know, there's nothing that can substitute for playing the game, for being out on the court, and for understanding how the game works in practice. Um, And I think there's something to that, and I do really respect what Jalen has to say about um, basketball and how it works. That being said, like... (laughs) You'll, you'll recall that when Moneyball came out, Joe Morgan, who is one of the greatest players of all time, was just saying the dumbest stuff about, um, you know, analytics and stats, like what, um, you know, how the, the best way to play baseball, essentially. And so there's this huge variance among players, I think, in understanding um, and being able to interpret and explain what it is that happens on the field or on the court. So just in the same way that there are folks in analytics departments who are are better able to grapple with that stuff. I think that just like deferring to players' knowledge is, it's it's not that that simple, obviously. Yeah, I, I do think that's the part that players miss. And obviously... I mean, generally, right? Smart people can be smug. So, like the, the more the more intelligent you think you are, probably the more smug you come off, which elicits a reaction, right? And I'm not saying all analytics people are smugs, but generally speaking, like they're talking about the arrogance of of analytics people who think they know the game more than players, which might be a little bit straw man, but you know th- that's what they're doing. But but really, all analytics is for the people who really know. What they're doing, people like Sammy Gelfan, who was with the Warriors and now with the Pistons, is they're coming up with a way to explain what happens on the court. <laughs> like, that's all it is. It's like, 
Yeah. Man, you know why you had a great game? Because you took advantage of this, right? And maybe if if you, if we show you how this pattern works, you can do that more. I don't think they are di- as diametrically opposed as presented, no. right? Like, and the the people who do it best, they know how to marry the two. Uh, but I do agree with what Jalen's saying. Like, so much of basketball is feel. The reason Kyrie is great is because, like, you could just throw stuff at him and he will intuitively react with how he leans and how he dribbles and where he goes. Like, there are no analytics for that. And players will always maintain, like, you know, their desire to be respected for just the sheer talent they bring. But these are not two separate entities, right? And as long as there's been basketball, there's been statistics. (laughs) So it's not like this is like a new wave. Oh, y'all keeping numbers now. Like, no, we've been keeping it. But it's just translating what happens on the court and trying to put a quantifier on the immense talent they have. Right. That, that's really what's happening. And when it marries well, it works well. Imagine the class you could design for players to understand statistics and computer science and for computer scientists and statisticians at a young age to understand the dynamics of how a game is played. That's what you want. You want these athletes to understand what's going on in front of a computer screen, and you want the kids that are drawn to the analytics to understand how the game is really played. That would be ideal. You want James Harden to know, like, look, man, when you make this step back to the left, it don't work as well as when you go to the right. So maybe you should try to for- get get to that right somehow. <laughs> He's like, no, nah, but I feel comfortable going left with the step back. All right, well, you just make it less often. Like, it's that, you know, it's that type of stuff that players use it too. And it's the funny part; they all use it. They're not like shunning it. They literally use it. Draymond Green has become an All Star, Defensive Player of the Year, and and probably a Hall of Famer because of analytics like he's reading tendencies and film and breaking down the game to a level where it's not just i'm gonna get out there and feel what happens like nah he knows what what your weakness is which direction you don't like to go like he knows all that stuff and he uses it against his guy so players use it like it's the marrying of it and it's also like the respect too right it's the it's the it's like how do we dole out the praise of it like who get who gets the credit for the success and I think maybe job creation is probably a way that that credit is being dispensed that players are like hold on <laughs> like hold on uh, some of that is us Marcus Thompson is a columnist for the athletic his new book KD Kevin Durant's relentless pursuit to be the greatest Marcus thanks a lot for sticking around it is all my pleasure I'm about to go give me some poutine and now it is time for After Balls. Josh, I think we need to dig into Ash Barty's cricket career. We certainly come up do. with a name for her After Ball. So she, as I mentioned earlier, didn't really play cricket growing up. And during her sabbatical, decided that she wanted to learn some cricket. And she was, because she's a brilliant athlete, picked it up really quickly and ended up playing for the Brisbane Heat of the Women's Professional Cricket League in Australia. Um, And she played. She played in like seven matches before deciding to go back to uh, tennis. And I'm just going to read a paragraph from uh, an ESPN Crick Info story about this uh, game. In the second run chase, she didn't face a ball until the 13th over, saw Lauren Winfield and Sammy Joe Johnson fall soon afterwards, and had to keep calm while accumulating nine from 15 balls. Then she started working twos before branching out into boundaries and finishing with a six down the ground. Her 39 from 27 balls was nearly top score of the innings, a 30 to love. I think that was a tennis. Good job, Good job a- Ash. I think that was a tennis reference at the end, the 30 love. I don't think that was part of the cricket commentary, mm. but I don't think I understood anything in there, you know, so cricket. Come on. You know what boundaries are? I know what a boundary is. And I think Sammy Joe Johnson uh, was a Don't play player. dumb with us, Fatsis. All right. I think we should go with uh, 39 from 27. It was her f- first and best game for the Brisbane Heat. 39 from 27. We will, we will remember it. We will remember it always. Can't, can't, can't turn your nose up at 39 
from 27, Josh. Josh, what's your 39 from 27? As we discussed earlier in the program, Rafael Nadal won his 12th French Open title over the weekend. His record at the French is now 93-2. and Nadal played the tournament for the first time as a 19-year-old. Uh, he beat Roger Federer in the semifinals of the 2005 French Open uh, in four sets in their first match ever on clay. In the final, he beat a fellow named Mariano Puerta. Puerta is from Argentina. He was 26 years old at the time. He'd never made it past the third round in a Grand Slam tournament. Puerta was best known for getting suspended for doping. In 2003, he tested positive for clenbuterol. He was banned for two years. That sentence was reduced, though, to nine months after he succeeded in arguing that he took the medication for asthma and that it had no performance-enhancing benefits. At the French in 2005, Puerta took the first set from Nadal, uh, 7-6. He dropped the next three, 6-3, No shame in losing to Nadal at the French, uh, but there was a lot of shame in what happened to Puerta next. He got banned for taking drugs again, this time for eight years. He was forced to forfeit all the ranking points and prize money he won at that French Open. Uh, so that was all I knew about my man, Mariano, before looking at this case. And I must say, it is a very strange case. Puerta provided a urine sample immediately after that French Open final. It was found to contain the cardiac stimulant, Edelfrine. In his appeal of the eight-year ban, he appealed it to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Puerta explained that he'd unintentionally ingested his wife's medication, which she took for hypertension and menstrual pain. He said that on the day of the French Open final, he met up with his wife and her mother and her brother in the on-site cafeteria where he drank coffee and mineral water. Puerta then went to the locker room where he learned the match would be delayed, at which point he went back to the cafeteria. The Court of Arbitration for Sport case document says, during the period of his absence from the cafeteria, Mrs. Puerta said that she had changed her position at the table to the chair in which her husband had previously been sitting. She then proceeded to drop 20 drops of her medication into a glass, filled that glass with water, and drank the mixture. She then departed from the room, leaving her brother behind at the table alone. Mariano Puerta then said he poured water from the bottle of water, which he was carrying with him, into the glass from which he believed that he had been drinking earlier and drank it. He claims that the glass appeared to be empty, but that he later came to believe that it held the residue which his wife had previously left behind when she poured her medication into the glass. Classic case of uh, water glass residue. So that's the story he told. In its ruling, the CAS noted that athletes must be aware at all times that they must drink from clean glasses, especially in the last minutes before a major competition. At the same time, they wrote that the quantity found of the prohibited substance in Mr. Puerta's urine was so minute, 192 nanograms per milliliter, that it could not have had any performance-enhancing effect. And the CAS pretty much bought Puerta's story about the switched glasses and the cafeteria and the chairs, saying that the amount of the drug in his system was consistent with him having ingested it, having ingested one drop of uh, the medication five hours before he donated the samples. Uh, Mariano Puerta, truth teller. In the end, uh, the panel reduced his suspension all the way down from eight years to two years, which I guess is the penalty for not being aware at all times that you must drink from a clean glass. He did not get his prize money or ranking points back, though, and although he resumed his career in 2007, he never played in a Grand Slam singles tournament. Again, always drink from a clean glass, Stefan, especially when you're playing Rafael Nadal in the French Open final. Thank you for the uh, tip, Josh. Anytime. Stefan, what is your 39 from 27? Norway opened its World Cup by thrashing Nigeria 3 to nothing in Group A on Saturday. I missed that game, but I watched the highlights, and I've got to say that the Lanslaget, as the team is known, look pretty happy after scoring each goal, even though they're playing without the World Player of the Year, Ada Hegerberg. We talked about Hegerberg on the podcast last week with Julie Foudy, and we all agreed that Hegerberg quitting the national team in 2017 and refusing to rejoin it did appear to be at the very least 
odd. Hegerberg, we said, offered only vague reasons for the falling out, that she was unhappy with unfair treatment of women's football in Norway, and that Norway's federation had actually gone ahead and equalized pay between the men's and women's teams since then, so what was the problem? Which I guess put me in the same camp as the Fox Sports studio panel that mostly ripped Hegeberg for failing to articulate her grievances more precisely. Former German national team player Ariane Hinkst said that if Hegeberg wanted to fight for something, she should be doing it with her teammates. Former Australian player Kate Gill praised Hegeberg for being firm in her convictions and acknowledged that we might never know what her beefs actually are. Then former U.S. international Heather O'Reilly said that Hegerberg blew a chance to use the World Cup to air her grievances. If she was a little bit more specific, she would gather a lot more respect from us, O'Reilly said. The women spoke for 30, 20, and 25 seconds, respectively, but we weren't done. Former U.S. men's player Alexi Lalas lectured Hegerberg for 40 seconds. Let's listen to his comments. Adam. What do you want? You have to be specific. specific. These vague generalizations, that's, that, that's, not, that's not the way to affect change. I think what she's doing right now, in a strange way, she's hijacking the attention from her teammates and her friends right now at the most important moment. And her cause, as I said, it may be incredibly righteous and noble, but until you are actually specific as to what you want, it's very, very difficult to change. And I think it's a cop-out to say, well, I didn't want to make it public because I didn't want to take attention. We just did an entire segment about her because she is arguably the best player in the world and she's not at the World Cup. If Messi or Ronaldo did that, we would have answers. We would know why. Lawless's sanctimonious speechifying instantly made me question my own feelings about the story. And it turns out that Hegerberg has, in fact, been fairly specific about what led her to leave the national team. She quit shortly after Norway lost all three games and didn't score a goal in the group stage at the European Championships in 2017. She said at the time that she disagreed with the Federation over how the team should move forward and that officials, quote, haven't been good enough at communication no matter whether things have gone well or poorly, end quote. My Slate colleague Molly Olmsted quoted a contemporaneous interview in the Norwegian newspaper Aftenposten in August of 2017, in which Hegerberg said that the Norwegian women's team was treated worse than the men's team in terms of pay, working conditions, investment at the youth and club levels, and team culture. Hegerberg also complained about a lack of ambition among her teammates. She said she would leave the national team training camps, believing she had regressed as a player. Those are pretty specific complaints. In another interview published last week in a Norwegian soccer magazine, Josemar Hegerberg said, It was tough at so many camps. I've been broken mentally. I had nightmares after being with the national team. If you want to get anywhere in life, you have to make choices. After deciding to quit the team, she said, Everything just ran off and I started to sleep well again. I wonder whether members of the media, men and women alike, have dismissed Hegerberg's complaints, not because they didn't bother doing a clip search or asking someone who speaks Norwegian to translate those stories from 2017, but because they were inclined to not take her seriously from the start. After all, when Hegerberg won the Ballon d'Or award as the best women's soccer player in the world last year, the French celebrity emceeing the ceremony asked her to twerk. We have no idea how Hegerberg was treated by the sportocrats who run Norwegian soccer, and we have no idea how she got on with her teammates and coaches on the national team. Those things all matter and no doubt contributed to her decision. And yes, Hegerberg's refusal to repeat each complaint over and over hasn't helped gather a lot more respect from us, as O'Reilly put it. But Hegerberg doesn't need Heather O'Reilly's respect or mine. Alexi Lalas complained that Hegerberg was hijacking attention from Norway's World Cup team. But if she was in France playing on the team, odds are she wouldn't be using her platform to fight for better treatment of women athletes and girls. And she's certainly doing that now and getting attention for it. So she's damned if she does, and she's damned if she doesn't. I've changed my mind. Ada Hegerberg is entitled to make choices about her professional career and then entitled to speak as specifically about them as she wants. She doesn't owe anyone shit. Certainly not Alexi Lawless. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. 
If you've made it this far, you may want some more Hang Up and Listen in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members. Ryan Lambert of Yahoo Sports joins us to talk about the Stanley Cup finals between the St. Louis Blues and Boston Bruins. I think everybody recognizes that's the way the NHL is going, and the question becomes... How do we get officiating to keep up with that? To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Josh Levine, I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.